Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 11th, 2021. I'm talking to you from a, a very bright but weirdly chilly San Francisco. I think changes in the air, fall or, or, uh, or what we call it in the UK, autumn uh, is happening. Lots of change. And we're talking today about the theme of change, especially when it comes to writing. Uh, everyone seems to be changing. Last week, I had Matthew Pearl. Many of you know him as the author of the best-selling novel, The Dante Club. Uh, Matthew has a new book out, The Taking of Jemima Boone, which is a nonfiction book. Uh, others are going the other way. Jeanette Winterson, who is a one of uh, the UK's best-known novelists, uh, fiction writers, has a new book out. She came on the show a couple of weeks ago called 12 Bytes about tech. So uh, with, with Pearl, we have uh, fiction uh, to nonfiction. With Winterson, we have uh, the other way around. Um, and then uh, later this week, I have the former Microsoft executive, Robbie Back, on the show, who has a new novel out, The Wilkes Insurrection. Uh, tech people seem to love to write novels. Uh, I'm not sure if we really need novels about tech since the real thing seems to be better than any kind of fiction. But a few weeks ago, I had Dave Eggers on the show. Many of you will have listened to that. His new book, The Every, is uh, an excellent, intriguing follow-up to his best-selling uh, The Circle. And then a few months ago, I had the uh, tech executive Kathy Wang on the show, uh, she has a really interesting new book out called The Imposter Syndrome about a, a female Russian spy dominating Silicon Valley. Today, I have another tech person on the show who is trying their hand at fiction. Many of you will know uh, the journalist journalistic work of, of Paul. He, he calls himself Paul Bradley Carr in his new novel, but everyone knows him as Paul Carr. He's infamous in Silicon Valley, former TechCrunch and, and Pando journalist, a real muckraker, someone never shy to express his opinion. He has gone from journalism to fiction, and I'm thrilled that uh, Paul is talking to us from his uh, COVID hideaway in Palm Springs. Paul my Bradley Carr. Where'd the Bradley come from, Paul? Well, so the Bradley's real. It's my name, uh, for one thing. I didn't just just invent it, but but so it came from my my father. But um, I um, no, there is another Paul Carr who writes. Um, I'm sure very very good uh, fiction um, sort of um, thrillers, and and I would hate to sort of steal any of his valor. So I um I I, I thought it was better professionally to to make sure I had that on there. So. Uh, to avoid any you are, I don't know about the other Paul Carr, but you will. I don't either. Be, you will always be Paul Carr to me, and uh, I'm never going to mention Bradley. Paul. And nor should you. Nor should you, Andrew. I'd hate, I'd hate to make you uncomfortable. Uh, no, I hope you want to make me uncomfortable. That's your job, Paul. <laughs> Historically, making everyone in Silicon Valley uncomfortable. In this new book, Paul Bradley Carr, fourteen fourteen, your novel. I think is designed in many ways to make Silicon Valley uncomfortable. Not that we are already uncomfortable enough. What's the book about? And why, Paul, did you decide to write a work of fiction in contrast to your traditional uh, nonfiction narrative style work? 
Uh, well, I can answer both questions in one go. So um, I, I have been wanting for years to write the book about uh, everything I've seen in 20 years writing about this shit show. You know, you and I have both seen a lot of it. And, and I, I thought at first, naturally, I should write it as nonfiction and, and tell all these stories that I'd seen. Um, but the more I, I sort of started working on it and the more I realized how much I wanted to include in there that, that would never pass muster as a as nonfiction. It would just be too unbelievable. The, you know, you and I have both seen things in this in this industry that are literally unbelievable. What we are seeing reported now is the tip of a tip of an iceberg in terms of how bad this stuff is um, inside inside tech. And so it just felt that the only way to write a story that people would stick with and 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 believe would be to write it as fiction, to say, as I say very early on in the book in the big letters, this is a work of fiction. So everybody can just relax and not feel like they have to def be defensive and say, that can't possibly be true or, you know, but also, you know, and also I wanted to, to write about some pretty horrible people, um, you know, some of whom may be drawn from real life, you know, archetypes so it, it um you know it just seemed like writing it as fiction um will hopefully write something that people can enjoy and not feel like they're getting yet another yet another book telling us how bad it all really is it's nice to be able to pretend it's not really this bad and it's just fiction i think um also i love I, yeah, I also, yeah, the, the book is uh, uh, and correct me if i'm wrong but the book is at least informally built on uh an episode in silicon valley where uh, Uber went after your then your friend now your wife Sarah Lacey. You you wrote about this uh, on Pando. Travis shrugged the creepy, dangerous ideology between Silicon Valley's cult of disruption. Would it be fair to say, Paul, that this book is designed around that um, episode, uh, that disgraceful episode in in Uber's history? It would be scrupulously fair. I, in fact, say at the beginning, I have a the quote that Emil Michael said from uh, the Uber executive. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning of the book. So, um, no, it, it was inspired in the sense of the book is not about that, I should say very clearly. But what it is, is um, when he did, the, when this Uber exec threatened to spend a million dollars to hire former journalists to smear and attack current journalists, I found myself wondering, what kind of journalist takes that job? Like, who is the journalist who gets a call from Uber and say, uh, you know, we want to we want to pay you a million dollars to destroy other journalists. And it was that germ of an idea of what would it have to take for a, a good journalist, not a hack, but a good journalist to take that gig. That was a sort of germ of the idea. So it was definitely inspired by that. And and obviously that is a good example of the kind of awfulness that exists in Silicon Valley. That is that it that just seems unbelievable. Um, or at least that was 10 years ago. I know what was that six years ago. And at the time, everybody thought there's no way a company, a tech company, would ever do something like that. Now it seems like, well, obviously they do that. What else have you got? Like it's, it's, it, yeah. So it was definitely drawn from that as a starting point, but it goes a lot, a lot, lot worse than that. Paul, as we speak, um, the world is being transfixed with the Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. Um, uh, Facebook employees now apparently at least according to the new york times are up in arms they might be on the brink of rebellion uh-huh uh, the they're always on the brink of rebellion right, right? Exactly. Rebel. it's something sexual here on the brink of something or other they're, they're um, edging towards rebellion but they'll just yeah. pull back at the last minute yeah 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 it's tantric rebellion when uh but what is it i mean every every week and, and you know this as well as anyone every week the the news from silicon valley gets worse and worse our fears are confirmed 
What does 1414 tell us that we didn't already know about Silicon Valley? Um, I think it tells us a lot of um, the per what happens in the personal world of these people. I think we've, we're, we're reading, and again, I, what we're reading right now is, as you and I both know, scratching the surface of the surface. It's There's so much worse goes on. But what I wanted to also be able to, to talk about was, was how these people are. I think a lot of um, books written about Silicon Valley paint tech people as these sort of, you know, unfeeling robots um, or or these sort of, or the other way, they, they sort of paint, you know, the likes of Peter Thiel as these master masterminds who who are just smarter than all of us. And the fact is a lot of Silicon Valley and particularly, particularly invested in Silicon Valley are dumb as a rock um, and basically just keep investing in the same thing again and again in the hope that it will pay off. And then of, of so much of Silicon Valley, um, you know, technology is driven by just algorithmically figuring out what makes people mad and doing more of that. And so I wanted to kind of get across that these people are not geniuses. Their, their evil and their cruelty comes from a sort of place of quite stupidity oftentimes, or just sort of raw, you know, like predatory, just just awfulness, the kind of awfulness you see you, you see in the news all the time. They're not a special breed. So I, I wanted to I wanted to kind of it, and again, it's supposed what I want to do is write a book that's a good thriller and a good mystery, and I hope I have. But if there is a message, if there is something I wanted to also do, it's it's take people behind the curtain to sort of show that the Wizard of Oz is really a sort of quite creepy and not that bright man who unfortunately has a lot of power and money. Um, and, and can do with that things that, that you know, other evil predators could only dream of. Didn't we already know that, though? I mean, that's not really news, is it? Didn't we already know that they were terrible? Um, I, <laughs> I think the devil's in the detail. I think we, but again, this is the reason why I think writing as fiction is interesting, because I think people, do, exactly to the point of your question, have become quite resistant to hearing anymore. It's like, oh, we know it's terrible. And, and yet they, they still are on, on Facebook. Yeah, there everybody still is using these tools. Um, no, I think Elon Musk is a good example of this, where people don't know how how not um, he's very smart in a very specific focused way. But you only have to, like, spend a few minutes actually looking into the stuff that he says and does. He's not a, he's not the smartest man on the planet. He's barely the smartest person in his own house. And, it, and I, I think I wish people knew it. I wish people understood that these are not master criminals. These are not not you know robot geniuses um they are they are just like you and i except um unfettered and and you know slightly grosser so yeah i wish we all knew this stuff i, I mean this was my frustration as a journalist a lot of the time where, where where you go so sharply from when when we first wrote about how bad uber was everybody immediately came in and said no 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 you're just overreacting you just hate them and how it turns overnight to oh didn't we all know this yeah. and there's not really that much period in between where people actually admit that they didn't know it and this was news. There's, there's, we we want to resist, especially when it's a product we're addicted to. We want to resist the bad news. And then when the evidence gets overwhelming, we quickly turn to, oh, everyone knows this. Why, why is this news? I, I used to do a show with Sarah called Why Is This News? Because this would be what people would say on TechCrunch all the time about this, this kind of story. So, yeah, but I think the point with fiction is I, it's not unlike with nonfiction. It is, I'm not trying to I mean, if, if all you do is read this and enjoy it as a as a as a mystery, as a thriller, and you you like the characters, etc. That's then it's achieved its goal. That's the that's the great thing about fiction. I don't have to have convinced anyone. There's no verdict at the end. Um, yeah, I'll leave that to like Wall Street Journal journalists who are trying to convince us the specifics of how evil Facebook is. And you know, people say, "Didn't we, didn't we already already know this?" But then when the next revelation comes out, they'll say that can't be true, and then quickly turn to, "Didn't we already know this?" It's it's the it's the cycle. We all know it. You um. <laughs> You mentioned Peter Thiel. I actually have Max Chafkin, the author of The Contrarian, um, a biography of Thiel, uh, on the show later this week. 
Thiel is pretty smart, isn't he? I mean, I, 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 take, your, I take your point that some of these people aren't that smart, but 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 Thiel is is an evil genius. If if there is an evil genius in Silicon Valley, it's him, isn't it? Oh, it, if there is a Lex Luthor, it's it's Peter Thiel, no doubt about it. Right down to you know making killer drones and the rest of it. No, he is he is he is thoroughly Lutheran in that regard. Um, but even I think you know even Max Schaefkin's book talks you know it gets a lot into like his sort of fear and paranoia that drives a lot of him. One of the reasons I've, people have said it's so scary the story of Peter Thiel is how much he's driven by this sort of like paranoia and fear and everything else. The same sort of primal urges. This idea of him as this cold, you know, calculating criminal. I mean, he, you know, Gorka wrote wrote a mean story about him. Whatever you think about Gorka, like they wrote a, a relatively trivial mean story about him, and he he launched a years long vendetta against him involving a professional wrestler. This is not the behavior of a rational supervillain. Like he, he it, it, there's there's so much even with him under the surface where he gets painted as this. Oh, he's just this this very cold, calculating, terrifying supervillain. And the fact is, he's he's he is those things, but he's also a very peculiar, weird human being with many, many strange, you know, uh, paranoias and 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 sort of vendettas that he's fighting. And yeah, I mean, if he's the smartest, if he's the smartest and most rational that Silicon Valley has, then we're we're all in a lot of trouble. But 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 he is objectively a very intelligent man um, and and terrifyingly dangerous. And you better be careful, Paul, because doesn't he live in LA near you? Uh, he'll be he'll come with you. He'll send his drones over. It matters um, very little where I live. He has exactly he has drones. He can find me in 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 Afghanistan if he needs to. So I'm um, you yeah, know. Well, Peter Taylor, if, you're watching, if you're watching, you know where Paul Carr is. If you're watching oh, actually, Peter, Paul, Carr, you, <laughs> Paul Paul Bradley Carr. He doesn't want to go after the other. Paul oh, Carr. stop it! Paul Carr uh, is more than you know it, Andrew and AJ. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the book, Paul, is, is a good read. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank um, you. I have a rule on my show, though. I never have people on who have self-published books. But as always, Paul, I having you on, even though this is a self-published book, why did you self-publish it? Why didn't you go through the traditional publishing uh, model? Well, so a couple of things. I think I think um, as we you again, you and I spent so much time in the, the tech world and I've I've published magazines and I've run publishing companies. I'm not quite sure the distinction of between sort of self and traditional publishing at this point, given every everyone is publishing their own stuff. But to but to answer your question, um I um I think, to be fair, uh, the book is beautifully made. I mean, it, it, you, no one would ever guess it's self-published. Well, it? exactly, and that's my. I used to be a publisher. I literally used all the same people I would have used if I had published it through my own publishing company. It's that's why I say the distinction is so paper thin. Um, but but you know, and I I had editors who who beat me up over it and all the rest of it. You have to you have to hire good people and 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 act like they don't work for you. Um, but but yeah, no. The the basic reason is I've been in I've been in the startup world too long, and the idea that there are these sort of people, whether they be agents or publishers, who who have to convince then other people that there is a book that is worth selling. I have a I'm very privileged to have a big audience of people who know me, as you sort of mentioned kindly at the top of the show. Um, I wanted to write a book that is based on an awful company that did, you know, it was, sorry, it was inspired by an awful company that did an awful thing to silence speech. The idea that I was going to be able to write and, and, and put out the book that I wanted to write without 10 battalions of lawyers telling me, well, you need to get Uber's permission if you're going to cite Emil Michael in the opening. I mean, come on. You know, so, so there was a big part of it where it's just like, I don't have to take a coveted publishing slot. I've published many books with traditional publishers when it comes to my first novel i don't need to take a coveted debut novel slot from a from a, a struggling author um you know at a publishing company when when i can do it myself but also i can't also 
honestly, I've been in Silicon Valley too long. The idea of waiting two years from finishing the manuscript to seeing it on a shelf when it's about such a timely thing and fast moving thing as technology, I don't think anyone would have published it. I mean, bluntly, I, th I think I think I could have been in in development hell for years, and I think it would have been watered down. And um, yeah, I'm just I'm just kind of I don't know. I'm I'm impatient, and also I wanted to be able to say that for my first work of fiction, even if it sells no copies at all, it's the book I wanted to write. So. Hopefully, you know, that, that's that's hopefully the answer. You can probably hear a dog in the background. Sorry, he's agreeing with me. Uh, I'm sure the dog's read the book. Uh, the dog loves um, it. The dog's a huge fan. The, you know that, the you know, again, as well as anyone, that the publishing industry is changing dramatically, that the challenges and opportunities for creative people like yourself, I, I, again, everything's changing, like the weather in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> we had David Kushner, very good journalist on the show uh, last week talking about his new deal with Substack. Mm -hmm. where he's going to uh, publish excerpts from his new book on, on Substack and Substack are paying him. Do you yes. think that uh, companies like Substack, and, and they're pretty an interesting company, do you think they are dramatically changing the publishing world? Um, so, yeah, I should say, uh, disclosure, Hamish, who's one of the co-founders, used to work for, for me at Pando. He used to work for us at Pando. He was a reporter for us before he... He uh, he started Substack, so so I've followed that company from the beginning, and I yeah I think they have some problems with with some of the you know the, there's that fine line between free speech and hate speech they're still figuring out, but as a company, yeah absolutely they are very very interesting in in um, in terms of and this is why you know it's so interesting this idea that in publishing in book publishing we still have this idea of self publishing versus traditional publishing. We have seen, um, you know, we saw bloggers come up and you and I were, were bloggers and you were very cynical about blogging at the beginning, but then came around to it. And now the New York Times is desperately trying to hold on to its talent so they don't go to Substack. And this idea that somehow bloggers are the, you know, the, the cult of the amateur, of course, are but are somehow this this sort of poor relation to traditional reporters, that's been flipped in its head. I think we've seen in music, you know, independent music through through things like SoundCloud. I think book publishing is that last bastion where there's like two different planets. There's traditional publishing and self-publishing. And I think stuff like Substack is just battering those walls down where, where you see um, authors saying, well, my publisher wasn't too sure about this new book or, or I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know if it would be appeal to my traditional audience who's used to me selling millions of a certain type of book. So I'm going to put it out serially through Substack and they're paying me to do it. I think we're seeing the, you know, the, what we saw with blogging, what we saw with every other medium starting to happen to publishing where authors are just like, wait, you mean I don't have to wait two years between finishing my book, which I've already spent five years on and getting it out to readers. I, I can just get it out to readers. I think, you know, Margaret Atwood did this with Byliner as well, where the heart yeah. goes last started out as a Byliner original, which she put out very, very quickly. Um, and and then it became you know a traditional book, and I I just think publishing is that last stand. Salman Rushdie, even Rushdie's going on to Substack. So if he's there, everyone should be really. I mean, if if Rushdie's decided to do a a book with Substack and and avoid traditional publishers, then I don't know what value traditional publishers have for it. Unfortunately, they I mean they they have value. They're wonderful people. I love my traditional publishers, etc. Like I want to get. I mean, this is not. I I have no issue with traditional publishing at all, except that it takes so long, and also it is such a gatekeeper system. There are so many people who who feel frustrated, including the likes of Salman Rushdie. I spoke to Sarah Pinborough the other day who wrote Behind Her Eyes. And she was talking about how after Behind Her Eyes, her US uh, editor thought that her, you know, wasn't sure about taking her next book because it was too dark. Like it doesn't, 
it, this weirdness in publishing where where it feels like you're you're fighting the same battle every time to get your book out in the world, even when you have an established audience. Um, I, you know, this is what made bloggers start this, this feeling they couldn't break through past the gatekeepers to get a, a, a wide enough array of voices out there. Traditional publishing needs definitely needs to look, realize that that it is, as you say, now possible if you have the resources, and hopefully that will come down soon as well, to publish a book that is indistinguishable from a traditionally published book. They do have still the protection, though, of things like bestseller lists, things like reviews in traditional publications. Generally speaking, I mean, you said yourself, you have a rule that you don't have self-published authors on the show. I think that's because a lot of self-published books are total crap, like I, I, because a lot of blogs were. You know, there is that sort of filter needed, but we got that with blogging eventually, the best rise to the top, et cetera. I think if I was a publisher, I'd be investing very heavily in in alternatives to things like Substack and and looking at how self-publishing can, you know, sort of indie publishing, how you can create the same indie experience because newspapers were way too late to recognize that Substack was going to steal all their best talent. And this is this the Salman Rushdie thing. And, and I think Chuck Palahniuk, uh, it just did it too. I think, uh, or was it Brett Easton Ellis? One of those two. I always interchange them. But one of them just went to Substack as well. And and, and, you know, that should be a warning shot, I think, for publishers. Uh, before, uh, earlier this morning, I got a, an email from uh, a media person in the UK asking me for my opinion on Jonah Peretti, who's the founder of BuzzFeed and apparently the Huffington Post. And my response is I don't have any opinion because I don't think BuzzFeed or Huffington Post have any relevance, certainly in the long term, let alone the short term. I'm curious, Paul, as to your take on the state of online media. You're a you're a, a, a veteran of um, of online publications, TechCrunch, Pando. You've done a yeah. number of them. There's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, media attention now on Aussie Media, another scam. Well named, well named uh, scam. Founded yeah. by uh, a very dubious character called Carlos Watson, who actually went to law school with my wife. Oh. Uh, his main claim to fame. Is there a business model though, for Paul? Paul for for online magazine startups whether it's a buzzfeed and aussie media you tried pando you didn't succeed it's well, a very very hard uh trick to pull off isn't it so i think there's two different i mean because pando um and not safe for work corp which was my previous company were were paid subscription companies and i think i think you can do those um well um i you know i think most uh, let's say most look most magazines most most journal journalistic endeavors fail i mean it's just a very hard business um and and I think you know BuzzFeed has done incredible. It's incredible to see what BuzzFeed has achieved. What used to be cat videos, they now have a seat in the White House, White House press room. I mean that's that's something. And 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 Jonah is, has a lot to be given credit for for that. You know I'm not a huge BuzzFeed newsreader, I'll be honest. But 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 what they've done is is incredible because they're still alive. Uh, you know Aussie is the anti BuzzFeed where it's you know it's it had all of the clickbait bullshit but none of the actual business model under it uh, there's a yeah. picture of mike arrington just went past us uh, to trigger was, me. Uh, Freud, a freudian slip on my no opinion. i like it it's 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 always good to be be kept off kilter by a uh, by a former uh, a former friend turned uh, tabloid fodder um but um no i i think advertising based uh, online media is is screwed i think facebook is it's now all just a facebook game whether it's the newsfeed or facebook ads it's it is a clickbait toxic soup and i think it's just i think it's screwed i think paid paid online media things like i i hate to say substack things like um things like pando pando was you know we um we got a lot of subscribers not safe for work corp if we'd have had more investment we could have 
we we would still be doing not safe for work corp to this day and it, it was it was this close to profitability i think if you can build something that people want they will pay for it um that having been said i think substack poses a danger where now everybody every individual reporter has their own five to ten dollar a month thing people are not made of money there's going to be another there's going to be amusingly a co you know they're all going to coalesce again around these sort of brands of groups of journalists um, at some point. And we've heard this so many times before. I mean, it's history repeating itself. First, first no, I'm worried. I mean, look, now is now is first. I mean, it's well. Let's be honest about what's happening. About oh well, we're gonna you know the brands have gone away. We're gonna start our own, and 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 meanwhile nothing changes. Well, something no something deep something darker is happening now. I think with with and I, I'm not I'm gonna mention Substack, but I'm not alleging anything about Substack. But to use that example, you know, think if you were somebody like Mark Andreessen, who you know is an investor in Substack, but who also famously what do you does mean not. If I was someone like Mark Andreessen. I'm saying if I hypothetically you were bitten I by a radioactive. Let's say you were bitten by a radioactive spider and you became Mark Andreessen and you hated journalists as much as, uh, sorry, you hated, you know, the media as much as someone like Mark Andreessen does. Wouldn't it be a good idea to potentially invest in something like Substack, which is tearing apart newsrooms, to your point? It's ripping apart these brands, all this great talent that is leaving all these publications to join Substacks. Yeah, I've, I've, I know enough about subscription media to know, you know, a churn will kill you. You know, it's, it's great to get that burst of people that came with you from your publication, but that churn will kill you if you don't keep bringing in new people. I can't think of a more tactical uh, way to destroy American journalism than to invest in platforms that, that rip apart newsrooms and then go, now you're on your own. Like, because what, are the, what, what will happen to the, not, even if Substack is a huge success, they can't all succeed. So are they going to go crawling back to their previous job or, or no, they're going to just be unemployed and, and thus silenced. I mean, and, and equally, if, if you're behind these micro paywalls, your voice is, is diminished. So to, to play the, you know, the, the bear case of these things, I think it's actually more, you know, there was always the promise that this was going to happen. It, now it's actually happening and real talent is getting paid. Let's be honest, Mark Andreessen's money to, to come away from newsrooms. If if I was a you know if I was a cynic who wrote novels about hypothetical Silicon Valley's there would be a there would be a novel in the billionaire investor who buys every journalist in the in the country and and then just leaves them to their own devices and and how that would totally destroy American journalism so you know I would say it's probably a more potentially more dangerous thing that's happening now but it is interesting and journalists are making money from it so we we shall see which of those realities let's flip a coin and see which one of those realities comes down. I thought of you, Paul, um, last week, uh, Stephen Levy, who we both know, he's the the dean of, of tech journalists, written <laughs> books about Facebook and Google and many other things. He's been around for years. He's a lovely guy. But he's always been, if not a cheerleader, certainly sympathetic and positive about tech. Even he now is changing. He had a Wired piece last week about how Eric Schmidt, who is maybe a, a more, uh, a less sociopathic version of Peter Thiel or Mark Andreessen is now funding super evolution. Um, yeah. Are we, are we at the beginning, Paul, of a new cycle when it comes to the way in which tech might damage us as a species and as a society? Oh, of course. I mean, it's getting worse and worse and worse. I remember when when, when we did TechCrunch Disrupt and, and I remember being outraged at a company whose who's, 
selling point was they let you find out when a speed trap was coming up near a school. And I was like, this is just good. This is an app that's designed to kill children. It's, and, and that seemed to me like one of the worst things. But I wrote at the time, this feels like a change. This feels like this, this idea of disruption. Like the word disruption is not a good word. Um, but every year it just multiplies. You know, it's, it's like the sort of um, Metcalfe's law. It's like increasing exponentially the evil that these things are doing. And the rest of us are just sitting, cheering along, or at least saying, well, what can you do? I mean, don't we, you know, well, we know they're terrible, so I guess there's nothing we can do. No, it is, the, the, they will stop at nothing. I mean, they want to, if you're a billionaire, you don't want to die. So you will, you know, because you can't take it with you. So you will start to invest in some really creepy stuff the older and richer you get, if there's a chance it might, it might extend your life. Similarly, you know, you start to get paranoid as, as, you know, we can all read the Peter Thiel book, you know, and you start to to make very dangerous uses of your money, such as our former illustrious president in this country, you know, um, you, you know, who was backed by Peter Thiel, you start to make these very dangerous investments to safeguard your own wealth and power. And no, I think we're going to look back on, on 2021 pandemic and all and say, well, that was a glory. Day. Those were the glory days before things got really bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Eric Schmidt, you know, sometimes I wonder if you unzip Eric Schmidt, if Peter Thiel will step out. I think he's, they're, they're, they're sort of much of a muchness, I think, but. I but mean, no, you unzip Peter Thiel and, uh, who will pop out? Mark Andreessen. You just keep unzipping and Steve unzipping. And it's and like you get to Steve Jobs, right? Uh, well, I mean, Steve Jobs has a lot to answer for that he obviously can't answer for, um, about, about that sort of making, Telling young founders that, and why Combinator then doubled down on this, telling young founders that the that being an asshole is a fundamental trait of a young male entrepreneur. And 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 it isn't. It's just it was a side effect of Steve. You know, Steve Jobs was an asshole who was also very clever and all the rest of it. But people saw that in the same way as they saw Mark Zuckerberg's hoodie and thought if they put one on, they would be Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I, you know, so he has a lot to answer for, for, for sure, in inspiring that. But but, you know, yeah, unfortunately, they are all very similar. They, they go to the same places. They have the same conversations. You hear them say, rationalizing evil and awfulness in the same way. You know, I've, I've talked to Hamish at Substack about, about the, some of the people on his platform. And I don't mean journalists. I don't mean like the Glenn Greenwalds. You know, I'm fine with different voices. I mean, some of the real hate speech that exists on that platform. And to hear him explain free speech to me, I could have been hearing it coming from the voice of, of from the mouth of someone like Andreessen or Thiel. Not that I'm saying he is he is sociopathic. I just mean when you get in that world, everyone starts talking the same way about justifying the continual acquisition of wealth, accumulation of wealth and power in terms of free speech and, and freedom and all the, that other bullshit that that none of them really believe in. Um we talked about whistleblowers earlier the facebook whistleblower uh, uh, perhaps one of the best known whistleblowers at least on what you called our former president we won't mention his name is the anglo-american uh, academic uh, fiona hill uh, i have her actually on the show this week as well talking oh, about her new book one uh, her new book about uh, growing up in the uk and coming to america like uh, Hill, Hill's narrative is she went from a small mining village in um, the north of England to become to Harvard and then and then working for the different administrations. You came from Dundee and you've ended up in uh, in Palm Springs. That's quite a journey. What is your take on your own journey from the UK to the US? What you've learned along the way very briefly uh, and of course, your take on America itself—an easy, an easy subject, uh, Paul. 
Well, I should say in case my dad is watching this, I came from I'm from Dunfermline, which is in oh, very close, sorry. very close. But 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 yes, just my dad will be going red as he watches this if I don't correct that. Um, so yes, I came here um, as you know to as a journalist for the Guardian, and I my journey first of all, I, America is is incredible. I mean, for all of its faults and flaws. Um, you know, Silicon Valley exists only in America for good reason. It is a it is an incredible place, and that's the reason I stayed here. And you stayed here too, so I'm going to assume that you, you, you love it too. And I and I think people often ask in the UK, well, you know, how can you stay during the last sort of four years? It's like because that isn't America. That's a that's not even half of America. Um, in terms of my journey, though, I, I've sort of I came to Silicon Valley. Uh, I moved here full time, or moved to Silicon Valley full time, just after I just about the same time as I got sober. Um, from from being a, an alcoholic that I've written about. And it's been really interesting watching. I, I came into tech loving technology. I, my first columns for The Guardian were me telling people, you know, this is the future. This is amazing. Old companies get out of the way. You know, tech is here to, to make everything better. And it was interesting. Um, as I got more sober, tech got started to behave more and more like I did when I was drunk in terms of like just destructive behavior, unwillingness to apologize, just damaging people and places. It's been really sad to watch this industry that I love. And I, I imagine it was like people watching me as an alcoholic, watching this industry I love become worse and worse and worse and indefensible and indefensible. So, you know, and, and I, I'm sure people watching this would, would find also some parallels in sort of American politics and some other things where this thing that we all love is 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 unrecognizable at times. And this this battle between, you know, loving something but also desperately wanting it to change and be better and believing it can be better. So So that's been kind of my journey with America, with Silicon Valley, with tech, um, you know, I do hope it can can recover and and become, you know, our big hope again. Well, you recovered, Paul. Um, you, I did. You I did. A, a wonderful piece. I know I would call it a wonderful, very revealing piece in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago. How I stopped drowning in drink. You've always yes. been incredibly honest. You don't shy away from the truth, however ugly it is. And your new book, Paul, fourteen uh, fourteen. Um, doesn't shy away from the truth. I think it, it unveils or unwraps or reveals what Silicon Valley is really like, particularly from the point of view of women um, and, and, it, and its treatment of, of sexual criminality is, is disturbing and I think in its own way quite profound. So congratulations on the book, Paul. Thank you, um, You are in Palm Springs. I don't know what you're um, doing down there. Uh, you, you don't play tennis. You don't play no, golf. No, I, I know. I moved here in the pandemic. It's 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 wonderful. It's like being on holiday every day. I sit by the pool. I write. I work. It's it's everyone. Should, I, I'm not going to say everyone should move here. I don't want everyone to move here. It's nice and quiet. No one bothers. I'm happy in San Francisco, but uh, we all need to read your book uh, by the pool if you have one. What else should people be doing though by the pool if they have one? Uh, uh, Paul, um, in these strange times, what other books in addition to yours? What are you listening to and so watching? Uh, there's some really good, I will say, all of the best books about Silicon Valley now are, are fiction, in my humble opinion. And that's not just self-serving. Um, the the um, So you had Kathy Wang on talking about imposter syndrome, yeah. which is a tremendous book. Um, there's uh, books like, uh, so Tim Mohan's Infinite Detail is fantastic about a book about um, what happens if the internet goes away. And it was very timely. If, if you haven't read it, the, the big Facebook switch off that happened recently. And yeah, everyone freaked out. It's really very, very, he's, he's from Bristol. He's another Brit and he, um, or uh, he lives in Canada now, but the book was based in Bristol. I have no idea if he's actually from Bristol, sorry, but I do know he's a, he's a Brit living in Canada. And he, um, his book is tremendous. It's about this sort of benevolent terrorist attack that takes out the internet and what happens afterwards. And 
And um, it's it's just a very profound book about, um, you know, how we've all become dependent on this stuff and what will happen afterwards. Um, Start The Startup Wife is a tremendous book about, about raising money as a woman in Silicon Valley and in, in New York. Um, and then just for good escapist reading, I love Ruth Ware's One by One. I don't know if you've read this, Andrew, but you will no. enjoy it. It's a, you know, Ruth Ware writes these great thrillers, this sort of, and it's a, it's set in a Swiss chalet. It's very Agatha Christie. But the characters in it that are getting bumped off one by one are all Euro tech people, sort of of the last FM, Spotify ilk. And and you you will recognize many of the character types in there. And it's not bad when they get killed. You find yourself thinking, hmm. And I, I say that as someone who likes both of those companies, but 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 that sort of very particular European startup type, who the boo.com type. Um, it, it's very good if you enjoy those, and it's also a very good escapist read. So, no, I think if you really truly want to know about Silicon Valley, reading books like that, I haven't read Dave Egger's book yet, um, but The Circle was was very good. Um, you, I would I would read any of those because reading the truth about Silicon Valley as nonfiction is very very depressing. Um, and then well, I just the, the truth uh, I think about Silicon Valley is revealed in Paul Bradley Carr's new book, fourteen fourteen. Again, Paul, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Andrew. Lovely to have you on the show. And when you write that next novel about Andreessen's takeover of, of all journalism and ownership, I'll be dead in a ditch. We'll have you back on, whether or not you self-publish. Keep well, Paul, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thanks, Andrew.